Star Wars Action News is brought to you in part by Brian's Toys. At Brian'sToys.com, you can find Star Wars toys and collectibles from 1977 to the present. Brian's Toys has it all, from vintage toys and action figures right up to the latest releases. And when checking out, be sure to say you were referred to Brian's Toys by Star Wars Action News. So go check out the world's largest selection of Star Wars toys at Brian'sToys.com. Listening to Star Wars Action News, your source for Star Wars collecting news, reviews, and updates, helping Star Wars collectors collect better. Be sure to check out our website at SWActionNews.com, where you can see photos of the items discussed, chat with other Star Wars Action News listeners, and much more, including information on how you can be part of the show. Welcome to another episode of Star Wars Action News. I'm Marjorie. I'm Arnie, and the gang's all here this week. We have a big show coming up. We've got Nathan P. Butler joining us to talk with me about Dark Horse's new Star Wars comic. We've got Brock here with a book review of Tim Zahn's latest novel, Jerry with a vintage report, Steve with a UK report. Basically, with all the holidays, everybody's just chomping to talk Star Wars. So let's start off with Jonathan and On the Pegs. Hello and welcome back to On The Pegs. This week I haven't been finding too much in stores, so we're going to start with a little online news. Gentle Giant just announced three new pre-orders this week. In the 12-inch figure line, they have released Luke Skywalker in his X-Wing gear. If you're a Premier Guild member, this piece is only $49. It's in stock now and, at the time of this recording, is still available. Gentle Giant also announced Bosk in their 12-inch figure line, and he's a really nice piece. This item is on pre-order, and it's due out in the third quarter of 2013. The last item the Gentle Giant announced was the Darth Malgus minibust from the Old Republic. This one seems like they may have lowered the bar a little bit. For some reason, when I look at the face and the sculpt, it just seems out of proportion. Hopefully, we're not seeing the final version, or perhaps the picks just aren't doing it justice. Kotobukiya has announced the next entry in their ice tray line, everyone's favorite bounty hunter, Boba Fett. Like the other entries in this line, there are six cubes per tray, and in this case, three helmets and three Mando death heads. Now, I've picked up all the previously released silicone trays, and they're what I would describe as a usable collectible, and a lot of fun. I've made ice with them, and I like to put them in my kids' friends' drinks without saying anything, and then sit back and wait for them to notice. I've gotten a wide variety of responses, from no notice at all, exclamations of cool, to your dad is so weird. So needless to say, I'll be picking the Boba Fett ones up. Diamond Select announced their next piece in their bust bank line, the Clone Wars animated Obi-Wan. This is a really sharp piece if you like the Clone Wars animated style, and it's set to be released in June and is priced at only at about $22. Another unique item that went up for pre-order over the past few weeks is from Blue Collar Press. They are producing a limited edition vinyl LP of the Phantom Menace soundtrack, and I can only assume that if this does well that they will produce ones for episodes 2 and 3. As far as brick and mortar stores go, there are numerous reports of various sales and clearances in Star Wars items at Target, Kmart, Walmart, TJ Maxx, and Marshalls. Around me, at least, most of these locations are pretty well picked over, clearing out the pegs for those new Droid Factory figures. Oh, wait. With the Droid Factory line canceled, we have hit what I will refer to as the dark times of 2013. With few to no new figures coming out, collectors are faced with the difficult task of finding something to collect. Some people I've spoken with have indicated that they are going to deal with this collecting crisis in various ways. One of my friends viewed this as a good time to get out of collecting. I think his opinion is in the mind minority, but this is a good opportunity to take stock of your collection, fill any holes or gaps you might have, and streamline things. I have several people in my collecting circle who are going to go back and search out those things that they've missed. I'm planning to go through my collection and both identify any holes to fill, although there aren't many from the modern line because I'm kind of OCD in regard to Hasbro things, but I'm also going to continue to identify and get rid of those items that I don't need in my collection. 
fashion. Now, as many of those of my generation remember, we loved to trade things when we were younger. Baseball or Star Wars cards, stickers, even toys. Come to the bounty hunting section of the Star Wars Action News boards and look to trade items or purchase items that you need. And if you have extra things that you've decided you no longer need, throw them up there. It may help a fellow collector complete a line or a collection. This is where I'm going to be listing a lot of my extras and hopefully I'll be able to help some people out. Remember, us swanlings need to stick together. While Hasbro items have been scarce in this country, there have been reports of items finding their way to stores in Canada. There have been numerous reports of the new vintage Adat in the Endor Deco being found at Toys R Us's in Canada. There are no reports of this in the U.S., so hopefully they'll be making their way here soon. I have been seeing a number of the new Lego sets at places like Walmart, Target, and Toys R Us. First, there are the two mini troop building sets. The set from the Old Republic, which has two Sith troopers and two Republic troopers. The second set is Clone Wars based and has two destroyer droids and two clone troopers. Then we have three small sets. An A-Wing fighter, which comes with an A-Wing pilot, Han Solo and Admiral Akbar minifigures, a bark speeder with a sidecar, which comes with Obi-Wan, Rex, and two commander droid minifigures, and the AT-RT, which comes with Yoda, a clone trooper, a destroyer droid, and droid commando. We then move up to what I would describe as a medium set, which is my favorite of all these new ones, a Z-95 Headhunter, which comes with the General Krell figure, clone pilot, and clone trooper minifigures. The last set is the largest and most impressive, the Ranker Pit. This set was designed to fit under last year's Jabba's Palace set, and it comes with a nice Ranker figure, and a Luke Skywalker, Ranker Keeper, and Gamorrean Guard minifigures. Now I feel that these sets are a nice balance of original trilogy and prequel trilogy content, with a little Old Republic thrown in. Now this week I want to share a positive collecting experience with you. I am officially adding Five Below to my rotation. Now we've all heard that Five Below stores have been getting in waves of vintage figures, and have also had random items such as puzzles and dart blasters, but when I went in this week, I was overwhelmed with the amount of Star Wars merchandise that I found. Do you guys remember back when Wedge was an impossible figure to find? Well, not anymore. At my local Five Below store, I counted, and there were 23 Wedge figures on the pegs. My jaw about hit the floor, and what blew my mind even more was that I found the first card variation that I didn't have. As some know, I'm a carded variation collector, and this was the one figure from the current vintage collection that I just hadn't found. But also found in Five Below this week was the Discover the Force line of figures that were a Walmart exclusive about a year ago. They had these pretty well stocked. Had I needed them, I could have put together a complete set for about half of the price they were originally. I also found Fighter Pod 4 packs for $3 each. I spoke to the store manager. If you remember, it's always a good idea to make friends at the stores you frequent, and she informed me that it looked like they were going to keep getting Star Wars items. With one store near my work and another near my home, I'll be visiting regularly just to see what I find. So we have a poll of the week. With the cancellation of the Droid Factory line, how are your collecting habits going to change? Are you going to stop collecting altogether? Going to sit and wait? Change the items or lines that you collect? Or are you going to fill in gaps? Go to the forums and let us know. The last item I wanted to talk about this week is a figure that arrived in the mail. At long last, I received my exclusive Jocasta New figure from Brian's Toys. I know that Arnie theorized last week that these figures were being shipped out in the same order that they were purchased online, but I put my order in the first day they went up, and I feel like I was one of the last to receive it. When I opened the mailing box, I was pleased to find the figures well-packed, and as I lifted out the first, the proof card fell from between the halves. The figure itself is quite nice. A good sculpt and the appropriate number of accessories, not including Dooku's bust. I find myself in a quandary, though. The figure and the card back are held in place by several large tabs above and below the figure, but it doesn't look as though it's an exact fit. As a result, the card back is bowed out a little and doesn't lay flat in the package, so I'm worried that it might warp the card back. It's that way in both of my figures. I'm tempted to remove it from the outer display box and put it in a star case, but I really like how it displays in the box. If you want to pick up a Jocasta new figure or are looking to fill holes in your collection, remember to visit Star Wars Action News sponsor, Brian's Toys. They have a huge selection of both vintage and modern Star Wars items. And remember when checking out, tell them that you heard about them on Star Wars Action News. That's it for me this week. I'll be back in two weeks or so to report on what's being found online and in stores. Till then... Then keep searching the pegs.
Thank you, Jonathan, for catching us up, what's in stores and online here in the States. But for international collectors, we look east to Steve, the Ginger Prince. Greetings all, this is Steve the Ginger Prince, and may I take this opportunity to wish all listeners of Star Wars Action News a happy new year. 2013 is going to be an exciting year for Star Wars, and I wanted to kick it off by reporting on some more awesome finds that I've made over here in the UK. On the last Sunday of 2012, myself and the lovely Suzanne took a trip out to the Reebok Stadium in Bolton, for the final Barry Potter Toy Fair of the year. A fair which is always advertised as the Bumper Christmas Fair, on account of the fact that it boasts a significantly increased number of vendors. Our first sign that the advertising was right was the queue. We always turn up half an hour after the fair starts, so that any queues dissolve and we can walk straight in. We followed the same strategy this time, but still had to queue in the cold for 20 minutes before we could get into the stadium. With well over 300 vendors present, we set about sorting out the wheat from the chaff. What's really exciting about the extra sellers is that they aren't hardened vendors, but usually normal folk who've hired a table to sell off a collection. And this is where we struck gold first. We found a young lad around the age of 16 or 17, who'd hired a store with his mum. He was obviously selling off his collection, and the majority of it was Star Wars. What particularly interested me was a plastic tub containing about 15 carded figures, each individually wrapped in plastic protective wrapping. On closer inspection, it became apparent that the figures were all 1983 Return of the Jedi figures, in varying degrees of condition, and labelled with prices that range from £20 for a General Medine on a card with a slight tear, to a snowtrooper on a near-perfect card for £150. With one of my New Year resolutions being to start dipping my toe into vintage collecting, I couldn't pass up two of these figures. Firstly, I wanted to get my hands on a log ray on a tri-logo card. Suzanne's all about the Ewoks and building up a nice little species focus. She's recently picked up some loose vintage Ewoks, so I had to pick this medicine man up for her. The card was in reasonable condition, a little scuffed along the edge, but the biggest concern was the bubble which was bashed at both the bottom and a little dented at the top corners. The figure's headgear looks like it's come off, but to be honest, I'm not sure it was ever on. The figure itself is striking. I don't ever remember Ewoks having such big ears. The second figure I was more than keen on was an Emperor's Royal Guard in lovely condition. Short of a little scuffing on the card and a little denting in the bottom right hand corner of the bubble, this figure looked fantastic. The reverse of the card revealed that it was a 65 back, with the Chewbacca Bandolier Mail-Away promotion on. I love the Royal Guards, their bold red colour really made them stand out in Return of the Jedi, and their silent menace gave them a Boba Fett style appeal for 10 year old me. Both figures were marked with the £30 price tag, so I offered the young lad 50 quid for the pair, and after asking his mum if that was alright, he agreed to let them go. Result. The second purchase of the day we made was at a vendor we've bought from before. He said he had recently acquired a loose vintage collection from someone in a house clearance, and that the figures were in particularly good condition. There were about 20 figures all from the 1980 Empire Strikes Back collection, and I had to agree they were all in great condition. Ranging from £8 to £15, the figures were quite pricey, but there were two that jumped out at me as must-buys. Firstly, he had a gorgeous-looking 2-1-B that I had to have. I believe Luke's medical droid was the first of the Star Wars action figures to use transparent plastic, and when I've seen this figure before, his midriff section is always yellowed. This fine specimen had no yellowing at all. The transparent tummy looked brand new. The blue plastic also looked great, really clean and shiny, and he had his original accessories still. At £8.49, I had to have this guy, so I picked him up, and, hello, what had we here? Slightly dearer at £10.49 was everyone's favourite Baron Administrator, the first ever Lando Calrissian figure produced. This Lando was also in fabulous condition. The figure again looked clean and shiny. The grey vinyl cape had no creasing or tears, and the weapon looked original. There was a little scuffing on the left hand, but I could live with that. Now, this was the later White Eyes and White Teeth Lando, but, to be honest, what's this scoundrel without a smile? We left the fair happy with our four vintage finds, and thought we'd pop into the Smith's Toy Store on the nearby Middlebrook Retail Park, to see if we could have similar luck with the modern three and three quarter inch. 
Smith's is a horrible store, in my opinion. It's like a budget version of Toys R Us, where no one pays any care or attention. It is, however, the place where I've seen the biggest reduction on the Trade Federation MTT over here in the UK. They had a 33% markdown from its original price of 149.99, all the way to 99.99. The MTT wasn't the only thing that was reduced. They had a selection of the vintage collection at £2.50 off the stickered price of 8 A steal if you miss some of those great Phantom Menace wave figures like Quinlan Voz. By far the best deal at Smith's though was the bog-off deal that they had. Buy two full-price Star Wars items and get the lower-priced one for free. I used this to get two movie hero figures for only £7.99. Firstly, I picked up Cross-Eyed Jar Jar. Not since Chained Up Chewie from the Power of the Force line in 1998 have we had such a bog-eyed action figure in the Star Wars line. Poor Jar Jar. No one likes him, and now he doesn't even know what he's looking at. The figure isn't anything special, he comes with a load of useless packings, and it's only unusual in the fact that he's got a flip-top head. All the other Gungan figures have had a one-piece head and neck, but this Jar Jar has got a head that's separate from its neck. The other figure I picked up was the Pod Racing Annie figure, largely so I can display him with that awesome Pod Racing helmet on. The multiple packings, which include some sort of bizarre jetpack type thing, are again of no interest to me, but that sweet helmet makes it a must-pick-up figure. So, a great trip out mixing the vintage with the modern lines ended my year in collecting. 2013 is going to be a great one. And on that bombshell, I'll hand you back to your lovely hosts, Marjorie and Arnie. Thank you, Steve. Now, one of the more interesting comic developments that caught my eye lately isn't, no, the rumors that Dark Horse is going to lose the Star Wars publishing contract and Marvel is going to once again publish Star Wars comics. It's like the 70s all over again. Delray doing the books, Marvel doing the comics. But Star Wars number one, a new series just titled Star Wars coming from Dark Horse, telling the tales of the original trilogy heroes, Luke, Leia, Han, Chewie, and so on, right after A New Hope, a period that feels kind of well covered. It did gangbusters. Dark Horse announced it sold out in its first day. They've got pencil variant covers coming, reprints coming, trade paperbacks coming, of course. It seems to have the most heat of a Star Wars comic since possibly the Legacy series. And so joining me to talk about it is Nathan P. Butler, a Star Wars comic author himself with the Yuzen Vong Kyle Katarn tale equals and opposites and founder of StarWarsFanWorks.com. So, Nathan, what were your initial impressions? Well, the story itself, I'm still kind of wary as far as, you know, where could this go? What's it going to run into? But I was surprised at how it seems as though it's giving us sort of a purposeful nod to previous EU things. For instance, the idea of an X-Wing pilot being shot down at the same time that you got a TIE fighter pilot shot down, them having to sort of face each other on the ground as an early test of a pilot, something that Luke ran into back in the Marvel UK stuff way back when in Day After the Death Star, plus, you know, nods to things like Vader's Quest. We have the mention here of the name Skywalker and that there's fanboyed him out there freaking out, going, oh crap, how does he know the name? Because, you know, maybe Vader's quest hasn't happened yet. Maybe Dark Lord's Gambit from the Marvel stuff hasn't happened. And yet, the recent omnibus early victories put Vader's quest at two months after Yavin, and this story itself puts itself about two months afterwards. So it sort of makes sense for one to kind of coincide with the other, though it's hard to say whether it's supposed to be something he's getting a premonition of or actually having heard the name. So and initially, from a story standpoint, I was a little bit concerned. I'm a little less concerned now about the Leia and Luke and Vader stuff, given what I'm seeing here, though I'm questioning how we're going to see all the Han stuff fit in with his exploits. And, you know, when does he have the money? When does he not have the money from the Alliance and whatnot? And the artwork in and of itself is just stunning overall. So I think the package turned out to be significantly better than I had expected. And the continuity wise, it seems like it is not nearly as groundbreaking, earth shattering, whatever you want to call it, as I had feared. So I'm enjoying it and looking forward to the next couple issues for this in the shadow of Yavin arc. And see, I'm not as familiar with the Marvel comic stuff for the continuity as you are, but I do know that the stuff that took place after the A New Hope adaptations and then after the Han Solo and the giant Trix bunny rabbit arc 
was dealing with the rebels finding a new home after Yavin, fleeing from Yavin. I think I remember a comic book cover of Luke stranded on a moon of Yavin while trying to escape. And so when I see the Rebel Alliance still trying to find a home after Yavin, I had to feel like there were some sandcrawler treads rolling over previous continuity somewhere. Well, I mean, that's kind of the thing with the way that the early stuff worked out. The Marvel stuff tended to give them temporary bases from time to time during that lull between them. In fact, they actually sort of did that also between Empire and Return of the Jedi uh, until they eventually settled on Arbra, the home of the Hujibs and whatnot. We've got a lot of different uh, stories of them looking for homes, various temporary bases and such, never really finding one that really stands out for the, the entirety of any of those time frames. And... The idea of the escape from Yavin and whatnot and Luke finding Hoth and how they eventually escaped to Hoth was all told within the newspaper strips that later became classic Star Wars eventually from Dark Horse. And that stuff that they've kind of nailed down where it happens a little bit later overall. It's not literally like the day after or a week after or something like that. You know, it kind of stretches it a little bit. And then they finally nailed down, it seems, the evacuation of Yavin to about six months or so after A New Hope. And if this is set in the two months after type of range, the idea that they would still be on Yavin trying to make their way out, trying to find another base, evading the Imperials going in and out of the Yavin system and such, uh, I think that kind of opens up some decent possibilities without running over too much, unless they wind up saying that at this point they've already evacuated Yavin and then you've got some serious issues here. But they could always just say that some of them evacuated Yavin. I mean, it's not like we haven't seen the evacuation of Yavin already multiple times in the continuity. People love to go back to those major story points and retell them over again. And it's so hard to tell anything from the first issue. And the reason I asked you on to talk about it is because it seems to be a big deal. Capital B, capital D. It's sold out. It's gotten people talking about Star Wars comics again. And it feels like, despite there being some great comics like the Knight Errant series, it just feels like it's been a long time since people were really talking about Star Wars comics again. So I think that's a good thing. But looking at this one issue, it's so hard to judge because like so many comics these days, it feels like they're writing for the trade and not writing for the comic. In this one issue, there wasn't a whole lot of there there. We got set up. We saw Luke and Leia out on a mission. We find out that Leia is going to be on a secret mission that I'll leave secret so there's no spoilers. And you see Vader and the Emperor talking about what Vader's next steps are going to be. But it didn't really accomplish a whole lot. Yeah, but it definitely felt like set up for the most part. The tension between Vader and this new officer seems like somewhere that they are going to pursue. I do find that one of the big, again, talking about steamrolling or sand crawling over continuity, there's a lot of frustration out there when it seemed as though Leia is somehow going to be an X-Wing pilot. She shows up in the X-Wing pilot with Luke and Wedge on a mission at the very beginning, and, you know, we see this whole idea of her. You look at the cover of number two, she's in a flight suit and everything, this, like, special dark-colored flight suit. They're actually advertising the next issue as good guys wear black and such, and it kind of left the feeling of, what are they really going to do with this character? Only kind of in a broader sense, yeah, we tend to think of her as a diplomat, but I actually found it kind of shocking. I'm rereading all the Marvel stuff right now. I'm on, a, like, 92 or so for that From the Star Wars Library video thing that I'm doing on YouTube. And I'm surprised by how many times I've run into issues where Leia is in a flight suit, flying a starfighter, or being the back seat to, say, someone in a Y-wing in a starfighter, whereas we don't really see that much with her doing that in the more modern stuff. That kind of made me think, you know what, this could work. And having just reread, there's an issue called The Choice in the Marvel line, in which Leia has to really come to grips with the idea that the fighting, at least to their mind, after Return of the Jedi, the fighting in some respects is over. Now the diplomacy begins. The hard part of toppling the Empire, you might say, is over. Now the really hard part of uh, building up a new government begins. And she actually talks to Luke about missing the action. She almost becomes an action junkie because of the fighting that she was involved in. You know, how is she going to separate herself between the diplomat and the warrior? And, you know, which side is she going to choose? And it seems as though this really is playing up the warrior side that I think so often, especially in the early Marvel stuff and in the stuff from the newspaper strips, we didn't see as much of because she was always, you know, no matter how much they said she's this strong female character, a lot of times she was the one who had to sit back while Luke and Han went out and had the adventure. And now we see her doing it which seems to be very in keeping with what we saw then. It's one of those things that makes me sit back and kind of smile because I think 
I remember seeing an interview in which uh, one of the things Brian Wood talked about was having had some background in this era of Star Wars. And that made me think Marvel, made me think newspaper strips. And if that's where he's drawing these inspirations from, I think it's funny because it's, it's fresh because it's dealing with something so old. You know what I mean? Something most people won't remember. Yeah, I mean, I never really questioned her flying a starfighter, but I've read Splinter of the Mind's Eye more than a handful of times, too, and that's how that starts out. And in fact, the opening of this comic reminded me a lot of Splinter of the Mind's Eye for several reasons. You talked about the art of this comic. I agree, the art is really well done. There were a few panels, of especially of Vader, that I thought were a little overly stylized, but I really liked that, but... I have to say the writing of this comic, I did not enjoy. I don't know. I think from the art standpoint, I mean, this is hard to describe. It's that quasi-manga kind of style where it's stylized enough that it looks like it's leaning that direction, but it's not fully in that direction. I particularly like that style, just like when I see manga or anime, I like this the type that is not extremely stylized. Like, I like the look of the Marvel anime stuff, even though the stories tended to stink. But from a writing standpoint, it definitely has its own feel to it from the standpoint of the dialogue. I mean, they feel like themselves, but at the same time, it feels like he's still kind of getting his feet under him as far as that goes. But I will say the narration is what really stuck out to me. For instance, he makes a comment at one point when introducing the Empire and the Rebel Alliance. He then introduces Leia saying, Princess Leia Organa, senator from that late world of Alderaan, is a symbolic leader of the Rebellion. The dreaded sound of an enemy missile lock is currently filling her ears. He does some interesting twists on the narration. He's kind of giving us the background for someone who really is new and getting back into Star Wars with this issue, while at the same time weaving it into, you know, the current event that's happening in the panel. It's that exposition that feels like it's a bridge into something that's not exposition that lets it flow a little better, in my mind. See, I did not like all the exposition. It felt like Star Wars Cliff Notes... And I have to think that in 2012, if you're picking up a Star Wars comic, you're not like, I've heard about that Star Wars. I might have seen it once a long time ago. I don't really remember much about it, but let me try out this comic. I, I think it's ingrained in pop culture enough that it, we didn't need a lot of this needless exposition setting up everything and explaining everything. I think a little would have helped to set the time, but so much of it, it felt very heavy-handed. And given that, to my knowledge, this is Brian Wood's first Star Wars comic, it's almost like he's educating himself more than the reader. It could delve into that heavy-handed depth, I guess, is one way of putting it. I think it worked well enough for a first issue. You know, if he kept doing this as we get further in and every issue or every story arc he has to lay it on quite this thick. I think that would show kind of a weakness to the writing that it's that it's getting old. But there are things in there that sort of need to be said. And interestingly enough, it's giving us some insight continuity-wise into when certain things were being used. Like, we don't really have a firm date, I don't believe, for when exactly it is they start using Home 1. It's just kind of it sort of starts to appear in stories. And here we have a reference to Home 1 as a rebel flagship. We get a reference to the redemption from the end of The Empire Strikes Back. I mean, I like the fact that we get these references here that help show us what's happening. Again, I don't see the new reader coming into this as someone who is heavily versed in the classic trilogy. I think that in relaunching this, the target audience that they want to grab new fans from are the younger fans who probably at this point have grown up with the prequels, the Clone Wars, and things like that. And maybe they've seen the classic trilogy, but that generational gap means that that's not their main version of Star Wars that they tend to think of. So you know, if you have someone who's very seeped in the Clone Wars and the prequels and you throw something out there that's in this era to them, they might need the refresher, especially some of the names like Home One and Redemption and stuff like that. Background on Wedge Antilles briefly in terms of piloting skill. Again, as a beginner step in this series, I could see it possibly being necessary. Down the line, though, no. Possibly, but there's also better ways in a comic book to tell things than panels. You can show Wedge being a good pilot instead of having a dialogue panel describing him as a good pilot. It's the show-don't-tell rule of writing that I feel would broke in this because it took a long time to read this first comic is because he's telling so much. And you talked about the continuity of the ships. I did kind of smile at home one because I didn't know how much EU it was in before Return of the Jedi, but I know it from Return of the Jedi. I like seeing it there because if you go and see Return of the Jedi after, you'll have more memory of home one, have more impact of it and the things it has done. But that's minutia that 
is great from a continuity standpoint, but doesn't add to the story. And the writing goes beyond the dialogue panels for me, though. I hated, just hated the dialogue between Vader and the Emperor. It made me wonder if Brian Wood had ever seen a Star Wars movie. What's interesting is it feels like the dialogue we're getting between Vader and Palpatine in the recent things like Darth Vader in the Ghost Prison. It's like this is sort of uh, being written as maybe the tail end of the same era in which we got the between the trilogies stuff, where Vader in this case has had a big failure. There's a sense that he needs to redeem himself in that sense, and he's being sort of played in that way. And that's something I actually find was severely lacking in this era before, because we get that type of kind of condescending, you know, I am a disapproving father figure, so you better shape up type of attitude. We get that in the prequel era to a degree, kind of subtly, you know, trying to pump him up, but make sure that, you know, he knows his failings. In the between trilogies era, we get some of that. But then because most of the stuff that was produced to take place between A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back was Marvel and newspaper script stuff that generally was being released prior to either us seeing the Emperor in The Empire Strikes Back and mostly especially seeing the Emperor leading the Empire in Return of the Jedi, we didn't get that because we really didn't have a firm grasp on the Emperor and they weren't really going to play with something that they had no idea what Lucas was going to do with it later. So it's kind of interesting to see that same dynamic showing up here. I mean, there's sort of a take on this that has been missing in a lot of ways as far as connecting those two eras. You know, when we finally start to see him again more between Empire and Jedi, and we saw him in the Between Trilogies era, now we're sort of getting that. It's just, it's, it's reflecting more of that earlier period than the later one, which makes you wonder at what point will Vader redeem himself enough that he gets the type of less condescending treatment that he gets Empire onward. I didn't mind the condescension so much. It's just the conversation felt too informal. I didn't mind the Emperor playing Vader. I didn't mind the Emperor setting him up and kind of demoting him. I just feel that from the scenes we see in Empire and Jedi specifically of those two interacting, their dialogue is very formal. It's very ritualistic. There's not a whole lot of jibber-jabber, which I think this comic kind of delved into. And I understand that it is right after Vader's failure at Yavin, but I almost feel like Wood is writing this as Anakin and the Emperor instead of Vader and the Emperor, which would be great if it was coming after Episode 3. I could say they're still feeling each other out, but they've had 20 years to get this relationship down. I don't think that it was all formed just between Episodes 4 and 5. True, but, you know, again, we haven't seen enough of this era in the interaction between those two. I don't think for us to know what form that relationship is taking. I mean, it could be that that up to this point, I mean, this is the way it has evolved. And we we have to kind of see what happens in some of the later stories between the two trilogies, I think, to be able to tell whether this is true to form. Is it too father figure based would be Anakin and Palpatine, perhaps, rather than it necessarily being something that just automatically is, is out of place. I would love to see them do some more with Purge, for instance. They just finished up Purge the Tyrant's Fist which sort of gives us the reasoning behind why the Jedi Purge is designed to wipe out the memory of the Jedi, not just wipe out the Jedi. To take a story like that, and all these different Darth Vader stories, we got Darth Vader in the Ghost Prison, they got Darth Vader in the Ninth Assassin coming up soon. Take those and use those as sort of a bridge to get from what we saw then to what we see now in this series. I think they could set up better so that it feels as though the character continuity is there. But Star Wars has always kind of jumped time-wise and had to turn around and fill in continuity gaps earlier. I mean, ever since the Bantam days, heck, ever since the you know Marvel and the, and the newspaper strips were running at the same time, we've had to kind of bounce around in continuity, slowly building up the reasonings for things later that we saw years earlier. And I, I guess I'm, I'm willing to put faith in it because I think Wood has proven himself on other series, and this shows, I think, that he is more of a fan and more versed than I gave him credit for, unless the, uh, many of these references are things that were suggested to him along the way and were not something he came up with, because if that's the case, then we're in for some trouble. Well, I'm certainly not writing this series off yet. 
Again, it feels like he's writing for the trade paperback, not for the comic issue. So it's going to be issue five or six before we even have an arc done where a comic can really be judged. And I'll certainly be picking them up month after month. And Nathan, maybe when we finish that arc, you can come back on and we can see how we feel in six months after he's had a chance to get underway. Maybe it's first issue jitters, even for such an experienced author as Wood. Yep. I would hope so, because this thing needs to stay uh, valuable now that I've picked up a copy signed by the author and the artist in the letter at this point. But yeah, I think this is one that's it's going to take a bit to grow on us. I will say I have more positive feelings toward this first issue than I did toward a lot of the more recent first issues of different Star Wars series. But uh, we'll see. I'll be reading eagerly. And then we'll see if it even matters or if Marvel just cancels it all. Exactly. All right, Nathan, thanks for joining us, and we will hear from you in a few weeks. All right, thanks. Thanks to Nathan for coming on the show. And continuing EU, we have Brock. Tim Zahn's latest book, Scoundrels, came out just after the first of the year, and here is his review of that novel. This is Brock, Star Wars Action News Book Club liaison with a spoiler-free as possible review of Star Wars Scoundrels by Timothy Zahn. Review copy courtesy of Delray Books. Having lost the reward money General Dodonna gave him before the destruction of the Death Star, Han Solo was in strong need of some serious cash to pay off his debt to Jabba the Hutt. So when a mysterious stranger approaches Han with a high steal, Han was interested, especially since the payday was 163 million credits. The catch was it was deep inside the most secure vault in the galaxy, belonging to Avrak Villachur, leader in the Black Sun crime organization. Not dissuaded by the odds, Han takes the job, but he can't do it alone. So he assembles a team of top-notch criminals, from twin sister ghost burglars to a sleight-of-hand master, a ship thief, and the late addition of Lando Calrissian to pull off the job. Can Han Solo's gang pull off the heist of the galaxy? If so, will he and his crew live to tell about it? Will Black Sun or the Imperials catch on and ruin the scheme before the money can be taken out? Such is the plot of Star Wars Scoundrels. Once you settle into the story proper, Scoundrels is by far the easiest Zahn read in a long time. Prose seems to flow in a way that I don't remember it doing so in his other books. Could very well be because he isn't jumping back and forth to concurrent various plots for the most part, and instead sticking to the solo gang. While we do check in on the Imperial agents and even the Marks from time to time, the majority of the story is the next logical step of the plan for the Solo Eleven. You can't shake the author as setting you up for this twists, being familiar with the genre, but it still works. The book lacks a distinctive Star Wars feel. Besides the lack of Jedi, space travel, and space battles, mostly it's because the sense of place doesn't seem fantastical enough, like Kamino or Cloud City. The story, for the most part, takes place on this one planet in and around the bad guy's compound where the safe is located, which doesn't remind us that they're in a galaxy far, far away, but rather more like a mansion in Martha's Vineyard. Mr. Zahn does name one of his guards Purvis, which I thought was a funny, subtle Star Wars nod. The presence of Han, Chewie, and Lando in winter certainly helped, as it mentions of other Star Wars characters like Darth Vader, Prince Shizor, and Jabba the Hutt. But it still remains, it could have had a little more of a Star Wars feel to it. The actual plan for the heist goes into action with about 150 pages left in the book. And once that happens, it's a lot of fun to read. I don't want to give anything away, but I will say Zahn set it up all brilliantly, and one by one the dominoes fall. We are happy with how everything falls into place, and we are treated to a terrific climax of a heist story. The press materials for this novel tell you this is Ocean's Eleven in the Star Wars universe, and that is exactly what this is. Han even has 11 members in the team, so if you like that movie and the heist caper genre, like I do, this book will no doubt be of interest to you on that alone. When you're first hearing about this book, I mean, who wouldn't think it was a good idea? What a great premise! But it was once I heard a few of the specifics that I became a little skeptical. Timothy Zahn loves this time period in the Star Wars universe, as it is his third consecutive Star Wars novel where we have him playing in the OT time frame, specifically around A New Hope. And this time, it's right after the events of A New Hope. And once I found out some of the members of this team, I became, well, confused. How is the author going to make this work, given the already established history for these characters? And not just EU history, but specifically the established and implied history in The Empire Strikes Back between Han and Lando. 
old friends who haven't seen each other in quite some time. This story takes place after the Battle of Yavin, and The Empire Strikes Back takes place three years after that? Is three years that much time? Well, first off, let me tell you, if you had those concerns as well, I'm happy to report it works. It's too much to go into here, but trust me when I say it works. Lando's presence here is not terribly strong, and to have that familiar character in a book like this makes all the difference in telling the story. Given what we know of Lando, he is well used in this book, especially since the alternative would be learning a whole new character for him to play that kind of role in the scam. Besides Lando, the other big question mark character inclusion in this cast was Winter. Even though Zahn created the character in the Thrawn trilogy, it was still a head-scratcher to me. Winter is Princess Leia's childhood best friend from Alderaan and is Leia's longest and dearest friend. But we never heard she knew Han Solo besides from the Rebellion, and so I was a bit confused on what is she doing here? I was pleasantly surprised how Timothy Zahn made it all come together with the history of Winter we already know and having her be a part of this squad. In fact, the way she gets involved in this plot and why is brilliant. And she is a great addition to this book because she adds a level of soul. Some of the best character work in this novel belongs to Winter as we get into her mentality, her daily torture in her mind, reminding us nicely of the gift and burden of never forgetting anything. And since Alderaan was recently blown up when this book takes place, she lost friends and family and she doesn't know if her childhood best friend Leia is alive or not. She didn't know if Leia was off-planet at the time of the explosion. So early in the book, we know a scene between Han and Winter will take place at some point where Han tells her that Leia is still alive. And even though that's telegraphed early, when that scene does play out, it plays out with sensitivity and humor. The expression, there is no honor among thieves, doesn't apply here at all, as everyone seems to get along great and with all respect for each other to the nth degree. None of these criminals would be double-crossing Han Solo for whatever reason, the most squeaky clean bunch of criminals you've ever seen. With such a large cast of characters, what with Han's crew of 11, including himself, the Black Sun operatives, their guards and men, and the Imperials, who are playing the police FBI roles here, Timothy Zahn infuses the book with a surprising amount of good character moments and depth. He gives us just enough character work on many members of the gang for you to get an opinion about them. I especially like the stuff with twin ghost thieves Tavia and Bink. Their bickering yet love for each other is reminiscent a bit of R2 and 3PO. Of all the new characters in this book, they are the ones I hope return in something else. Bink's persona, skill set, and ability are extremely entertaining. The marks of the Khan, the Feline Kazadi, the Black Sun Vector Chief Villachor, and the Security Chief Shekwa are well-written, as Mr. Zahn doesn't write them stupid. Thank goodness. Their theories on what is going on are certainly conspiratorial, but they aren't all that incorrect either. <laughs> and as we first read them, they are convinced they're one step ahead of whatever's going on. And later, when the frustration of these characters really starts to come out with themselves and one another, with paranoia flying high and the tensions for their lives and loyalty questioned, he did a good job with these characters, which in this type of story are usually so underwritten. The short shrift in this character work area goes to Han, Chewie, and Lando, actually, and I can understand why. This book relies on you knowing these characters from the movies and elsewhere. The book starts off with Han's giant character moment, as Mr. Zahn exclaims his opinion on who he thinks shoots first in the cantina in A New Hope with all the subtlety of a raincore in a china shop. Not to say it isn't amusing, but what it does also do is quickly answer why Han Solo doesn't pay Jabba the Hutt with the princess reward money. Because why doesn't he use the reward money that we see him pack up at the end of A New Hope to pay off Jabba? Mr. Zahn provides answers to these questions and others, like how could Lando be here, in a quick and satisfying way. It's as if the author had the same issues the reader would and set about answering them properly. Like how Mr. Zahn points out more than once that while Han is quite the clever smuggler, this sort of intricate con plan isn't his forte. Yet seeing him in this role does lead credence to how he can command as a general a few years later in Return of the Jedi. Han Solo isn't a man of action with a blaster or a ship here. He's a smuggler using his smarts, experience, and connections. A man with answers that can make this scam work. As Scoundrels follows the basic heist movie formula, after the scene setting up the mark and of getting the team together as we learn each of their talents, we get an early scene of a smaller crime that will help the larger one. And in this case, it's a small B&E for a data pad and a smaller safe aboard the Black Sun's Vigos. 
And that was a good read. It was a Mission Impossible type acrobatics, full of traditional close calls. And it smartly ends by reintroducing the power Feline, the race of the heads of Black Sun, have over people with their pheromones. And how one of the team, Dozer, resisted and how hard it was to do so. It was a very well-written scene reminding us exactly who this crew is up against and what the consequences could be if they fail and get caught. The middle of the book, before we start the big heist, when the con is on and the final pieces are being put in place, there is tension in the group as Lando and another team member are picked up unexpectedly by a third party and moved across planet. And unfortunately, we got a lot of pages spent on the group, Han included, worrying about and trying to get a beat on where Lando was taken. It lacked any sort of tension, no matter how wonderfully the scenes were written, because of the meta-knowledge we the reader bring to the book. Almost any other character in the tension could be there. The stakes raised, but not with Lando. We know he lives. And that is one of the caveats that every author who writes in this time period or with these known characters' faces. And in this situation, it undercuts the tension more than other recent examples because this book is so light and fun that it could use all the tension it could get. Thankfully, the author follows their capture with a rescue mission that is expertly described, exciting and fun and gives the book a much-needed jolt of energy. He knew it was time for an action scene, and he executed perfectly. Yet later in the book, Mr. Zahn attempts the same thing with Winter, another character we know will survive this ordeal, as she is put in danger when her part of the grand plan doesn't go completely to design. Now again, we know she will live, but the scene where she is trapped in the parking lot works so well because I am thoroughly engrossed in her situation, and at this point, the con. The actual plan is already deep in motion. I found myself actually wondering how in Yavin she was going to get out of this mess. So all things considered, you have to give props for Mr. Zahn for getting us all riled up for the danger as much as he has, given that we know what we know going in. As the book wound down, I was waiting for a twist that a good heist movie executes well and an average one telegraphs way too early. Obviously, folks, I'm not going to spoil anything about the end here. I will say that it's a conclusion that you probably won't see coming, and it completely works. Scoundrels has a lot going for it, and it is my favorite Timothy Zahn Star Wars novel in years. It was complex but never confusing. The large cast of characters was well managed, and he even made time for some good character work, though admittedly less than in other works of his, given the nature of the story. Not the most Star Warsy novel, which is typical when they do these genre pieces. Scoundrels is without a doubt a fun read, a page turner you will want to finish, and a ride you will be happy you took, with a satisfying and great ending. For Star Wars Action News and the Star Wars Action News Book Club, this is Brock. Now back to Arnie and Marjorie. Thank you, Brock. Now, I haven't had a whole lot of time to read or do much of anything lately with now playing revving back up but i did listen to the audiobook of scoundrels and i just got to give random house audios some props you know i've been listening to star wars audiobooks for over a decade now and i have all the old cassette ones they used to come out with when they were on two tapes and they were horribly abridged they were virtually cliff notes with sound effects and ever since a couple years ago, they started going unabridged. You're getting the entire experience of the book acted out. We talked to Mark Thompson, the current voice actor for a lot of these books when we were at Celebration. Great guy, doing a wonderful job on these. He does great with Scoundrels. His voice never becomes monotonous as he takes on all the different characters and their accents. And when you're doing these audiobooks with original trilogy characters, the voice actors are so important. It's not that you have to reproduce the voices of the actors or actresses. I mean, you've got Mark Thompson doing Leia and female characters. The trick isn't to sound like Carrie Fisher. I don't know if his voice can go that deep. Oh, wait, this is not modern-day Carrie Fisher. <laughs> the trick is to get the inflection, though, and not of the person but of the character. And he does a really good Han, but where he excels is Lando. He has Lando's inflection and the way Lando elongates certain things. Sure, it's a Billy Deism, but when he's doing Lando, it's so well done. And of course, the audio production on this is top notch. It's something to strive for whenever I do any audio work with the John Williams music, the entire library of Skywalker sound effects. And when they're unabridged, you're getting a 14-hour production of this. 14 hours. For under $30, you get 14 hours of entertainment. 
That's actually a bargain. And it's great if you've got a commute or, you know, if you're working on the treadmill or something. Or have a desk job where you can listen to things while you work and you don't have to pay a whole lot of attention to the work that is. The book gets the attention. So I highly recommend checking it out in the audiobook format. Not all of the Star Wars books get the audiobook treatment, but Scoundrels being a flagship title by Tim Zahn, of course, will. You can get that right now at Amazon.com. It's also available on iTunes. Now, our last little bit of the team is Jerry, and he's got a really interesting vintage viewpoint this week. He's going to talk about displaying your collections. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. Even though we move forward to 2013, I'm still living in the past. Welcome to the first Vintage Viewpoint for this year. I'm Jerry, and I'm glad you joined me today. Without setting myself up too much, I feel this is going to be one of my most interesting segments. For me, anyway, it's the culmination of a lot of changes that have occurred in the methods in which I display my vintage collectibles and as I display some items for the very first time. One thing that happened to me at C6 that I've shared before is that my fever for vintage collecting went up to the nth degree. I went and made a few new acquisitions to the collection, such as the Ewok glider from the Return of the Jedi line, as well as the role-playing biker scout pistol that I picked up at a local video game store. But I also took a lot of effort to clean up or restore some vintage playsets. I did a full cleanup of my Ewok Village playset and set it out on display, looking brand new for the first time in six years, and I finally restored the Swamp Foam in a Dagobah playset. Now, I'll go into more detail on these projects in subsequent weeks, but I've been having a lot of fun with all this. But as I said, the most drastic changes for me came in how I display some items. First, I decided to add a shelf across the back of my collecting room to house additional vintage items. See, I have some bookcases that I display loose figures on, mostly modern figures, but with some vintage. I use a few shelves along the two walls of my room, though, for the majority of my vintage items. So I wanted to add on to this capacity. But what I found is that the Home Depot by my house still carries the same shelves I bought back in 2006, but now they are deeper. They used to carry 10-inch shelves, but now they are fully stocked with 12-inch shelves. So what's the obvious thing to do? Well, replace all the shelves, of course. With an additional 48-inch length of shelf at the added depth, I created nearly 7 square foot of free space for the vintage collection. I call it free space because the shelf sets 6 feet off the floor, and on that side of the room, it doesn't cost me space that I would have used for anything else. Everything that used to be there is still there. Now, some of my favorite vintage items are the fold-up paper backdrop play sets of the late 70s and early 80s. The Sears Canteen Adventure set, the JCPenney Cloud City set, Land of the Jawas, the Sears Rebel Command Center, and the Ice Planet Hoth. But the way I've acquired these over the last 15 years or so is that I've been fortunate enough to find each of them in a near-mint, unassembled condition. Now, I've never bought one sealed in box because I like to inspect the item and know it's good. As Steve Sansweet has said, a sealed box without a window could be filled with anything. Now, these sets are especially nice to find this way because they are essentially made out of folding card and box material, which is to say they are very delicate. Now, I only had one of these play sets as a kid, the Ice Planet Hoth set, and suffice it to say, its lifespan in my house could have been measured in days before I tore it up. Now, as some of you may know, I have a certain affinity to folding paperboard structures and have designed a few boxes myself, so these are must-have vintage collectibles for me. But here's the dilemma. How do you display these items? When you buy it near mint and unassembled, it's a tough decision to actually put it together. Some of these, particularly the thin corrugated structures of the Jawa and Hoth playsets, feel like they're going to fall apart in your hand even as you remove them and replace them into their vintage boxes. In addition, if you do assemble them and set them out, it would take considerable space to do so. They each have a fairly decent footprint once folded up or inserted into the plastic base. But what's the fun of having it if you can't look at it and appreciate it? Part of the charm of these items is the beautiful and unique artwork that adorns them. The Rebel Command Center backdrop, for instance, is absolutely gorgeous. Well, these playsets have sat in their packages on my shelves for far too long. So here's the problem statement that I formed that I sought a solution to. How do I display an item that I do not want to assemble? The answer came to me from an idea I actually had for a vintage board game. Similar question, how do you display a board game? Not the packaged item. That's easy, but the board game itself, along with all the pieces. I have three vintage Kenner board games, Escape from the Death Star, Yoda the Jedi Master, and the Hoth Ice Planet Adventure game. Of the three, I always felt the Hoth Ice Planet one had beautiful graphics on the game board and some awesome game pieces with the Millennium Falcon being represented in four different colors. So my thought was to frame them. So there's my lead. Frame these items like they're posters, right? The play sets are really just thick paper. 
Well, that's the problem. They're way thicker than posters are. But that's where I discovered the magic of the shadow box. If you're not familiar with shadow boxes, they're basically a picture frame that has some depth to it intended for keepsake objects and mementos. Now, the way I became aware of them is that my wife bought one to display some of my daughter's gymnastic medals and ribbons. Now, some are very large to allow the display of something as big as a football jersey, and they typically have a backing that you can hang objects to either through a pin or with a hook-and-loop fastening tape. That's what Velcro is, by the way. Now, I certainly don't advocate using push pins or adhering tape to your vintage collectibles. I've got some other ideas for mounting items to the backdrops that I'll cover a little bit later. So first, go to any Michaels and you can find all sorts of sizes for shadow boxes. The ones I got range in size from 11 by 8 to 30 by 24. Now, Michaels always has a 40%, 50% off coupon of some variety, either on individual items or even just in frames. And oftentimes, their frames are even on sale 40 or 50%. So never pay the full 30 40 60 $70 price or whatever they might be on the tag. Now, the nice thing about shadow box frames is that suddenly you aren't limited to just displaying the playset. You can also hang the instructions, the toy catalog, the figures, or maybe even some of the accessories that come with them. So what I did was I laid out the items on the floor a couple different ways, sometimes using all the items, sometimes not, and then I would take the various dimensions of these arrangements and decide based on the best shadow box dimension actually available at the store. The first playset I hung was the Rebel Command Center playset. It was exclusive to Sears in 1981 and was a very easy store exclusive for Kenner to do. The base is the same one used in the Hoff Ice Planet set from the previous year. Both were cast in white. But this base was actually first used in the 1979 Land of the Jawa playset, which of course was molded brown like the Tatooine sand. I hate sand. The rest of the place set is a simple corrugated backdrop. The backdrop, though, has beautiful artwork of Echo Base. This is what makes it one of my favorite place sets and the subject of my first shadow box. The backdrop folds at a 90 degree angle, slides under the base, and is supported by two smaller corrugated supports that you fold in half and insert into the plastic base. Like the Land of the Jawa and the Ice Planet Haas sets, this base has an action lever and a snapper arm that allows you to move a figure back and forth to knock over another action figure. The set also came with three action figures, Hoth Luke, R2 with sensor scope, and General Veers, or the ADAC commander as he was called then. Now these weren't exclusive figures to the set, but the package calls them three new figures. They were actually an early release of these figures prior to their carded release in 1982. So how I displayed this set was, is I only mounted the backdrop, the instructions, and the three figures in their baggies along with the little box the figures were shipped in. Now mounting the plastic base would have been more difficult since it's a much heavier item and would have required a much larger shadow box to fit it. I also didn't display the support pieces because they're just basically blue triangles and are not very exciting. For me, the magic in this is the art of the backdrop and the display of vintage figures still sealed in their baggies. Also, I'm a fan of the instruction sheets of the vintage toys. The hand-drawn, step-by-step, set-up instructions just have a lot of character to them. The next playset I did was the similar Land of the Jawas playset. Again, the set uses the exact same plastic base molded in brown, but the corrugated backdrop is more intricate. It doesn't just have a single-piece backdrop like the Rebel Command Center did. It actually has a two-piece structure with a working elevator that allows you to build a stand-in for a functional sand crawler. You can actually place an R2-D2 on the little stand and pull him up into the sand crawler, a much cheaper alternative to the remote-controlled sand crawler vehicle from the same year. But the cost of this intricacy is a very delicate structure with some very large die-cut areas and multiple tab and slot connections. Playing with it at all pretty much means damaging it in some way, shape, or form. None of these are easy to find in good condition if they are loose and played with. Oftentimes, something is torn, bent, or held in place with tape. Now, this set did not come with any figures, but instead came with one of the coolest accessories, an escape pod. There's a decal sheet included intended for the use on the escape pod. I was thrilled that the set I picked up years ago has these stickers unapplied, just how I like it. Now, in the shadow box, again, I didn't display the base, nor did I mount the escape pod. It's actually too big for the shadow box. I used one that measures 30 inches by 24 inches in length and width, necessary to fit both pieces of the sand crawler and the instructions. But the inside depth of the frame is around two and a half inches while the escape pod is closer to three. But even if it did fit, the accessory is round and conical and wouldn't have been very easy to mount to the flat backdrop anyway. So I set the escape pod up on one of my shelves with an R2 and 3PO figure and treat it as a separate little diorama all to itself. 
Now, the last play set I hung was the Sears Cantina Adventure set from 1978 and 79. This was actually the easiest one to do because the entire play set is just one single piece of thick paperboard. Certainly more of a backdrop like the early bird kit was than an actual play set. The only accessories are the white pegs included to stand the action figures up. Four of them are pre-inserted into the backdrop while many others are sealed in a baggie. So, because of its design structure, the backdrop hangs flat on the backdrop of the shadow box. With it, I hung the four Cantina aliens in their baggies. Hammerhead, Walrus Man, Greedo, and the Blue Snaggletooth. Yes, I'm very proud of the fact that my Blue Snaggletooth is mint in a sealed baggie. A very rare way to find this little guy. Now most of us know the story of the Blue Snaggletooth. He was designed by Kenner based on a black and white photo that only showed the character from the waist up. Thus he has a blue jumpsuit, gloves, silver boots, and is a full-size character. It was of course corrected to the far more common red Snaggletooth with furry hands and feet standing at about only two inches tall. Two little known facts though about the Blue Snaggletooth figure. First, that figure wasn't exactly exclusive to this playset. He was also available in the 1978 Sears Wish Book as a two-pack with Greedo. So it is accurate to say that the Blue Snaggletooth was a Sears exclusive, but not just to this playset. The second little known fact is that not all the Cantina Adventure sets came with a Blue Snaggletooth. Now most of them did, but some came with a red one. Keep in mind, this playset was available in 1978 and 1979. By 1979, the Red Snaggletooth was readily available. When buy-in, confirm with the seller that it comes with a Blue Snaggletooth, or check for yourself if buying in person. Now this set in particular has become of great interest lately due to the general giant jumbo release of the Blue Snaggletooth at San Diego Comic-Con this past year, and the current pre-order that's available of a jumbo backdrop due to come out second quarter of this year. Now that all four of these Cantina characters are available, I'm sure it'll make for a very impressive display. I only wish General Giant had put the Blue Snaggletooth in a baggie since Blue Snaggletooth was never carded, but oh well. Now we saw a little bit of a cameo appearance of a character that resembles a Blue Snaggletooth. For all you Clone Wars fans, probably remember that from the premiere episode of Season 5. Now I chose not to spend additional wall space in shadow boxing the Ice Planet Hoth playset or the Cloud City playset. The Ice Planet Hoth set is actually more complicated than the Land of the Jawas, as it's actually built out of three pieces. You have the main backdrop, the body of the walker, and separately a head. It uses the same elevator parts that you see on the Jawa playset, and also comes with an accessory of its own, a radar laser cannon. If you're familiar with the mini-rig version that came out in 1982, it's much larger than the one included in this playset. This pack version is a simple design without any break apart features, but was very neat to have back then a year or two before the bigger one came out. The Cloud City playset I'll reserve for another time as it's unlike any of the sets that I've described here today. So the last item I shadow boxed was a very small item fitting in an 11 by 8 frame. That item being the Mail Away Action Figure Survival Kit. This kit came with Luke Skywalker's grappling hook and belt, the blue Jedi training harness that Yoda can ride in, two Hoth backpacks, three asteroid gas masks, and five assorted blasters. Sorry, I guess we're past Christmas. But anyway, for five proof of purchases received by May 31st, 1981, you received this kit by mail. This was my favorite mail-away offer back in the day because it offered exclusive accessories that were actually seen in the films. My mom must have ordered five or six of these, and fortunately, two of them survived unused and unopened. Well, for this shadow box, I opened one to display the backpacks, the gas mask, and the grappling hook as individual items along with all the accessories in a sealed baggie and the included instruction sheet. I was very happy with how this one turned out. It didn't take up too much space in my wall at all. Now before I leave you though, I wanted to share some best practices when it comes to mounting these type of items to a shadow box backdrop. First, be very careful when using pins. It's fine to use a pin to create a little ledge for the item to rest on, but absolutely do not push a pin through your vintage collectible. Now, of course it's your item, your choice, but it obviously damages the item and it's just not necessary. Now thin pins can potentially dig into some items under their own weight. I've not observed this personally since most items are very light, but I found 3M command strips to be a much better alternative. They're thicker and you can find them transparent to be less noticeable, although they're not invisible by any stretch of the imagination. The use of command strips though are necessary to hang the Kenner baggies. They're so inconsistent in how they're filled and sealed that 
but push pins alone can't hardly hold them up. Again, do not push the pins through the baggies. You don't want to create small little holes in them. Now there are several sizes of command strips. I use three or four different sizes among the different playsets to get the right hold on the individual items. And don't use them sparingly. On the Cantina playset backdrop, I use four command strip hooks to hold it up. Two probably would have done the job, but I like having the weight distributed among more hooks and alleviate the weight resting on any given one. Now when using thumbtacks, try to get a color to match the item. I use gold tacks to hold portions of the sand crawler and the cantina backdrop. It matches the brown tan colors of those items nicely. I used white tacks along instruction sheets and inserts that are of course printed on white paper and black pins along the toy catalogs. Again, they're not invisible but they'll stand out far less. Well, there you have it, a lesson in shadow boxing while we reviewed some great vintage Kenner playsets. If you decide to display any items in shadow boxes, please post some pictures in the forums. I'd love to see them. If you have any questions, feel free to post them on the forums as well. Well, I'll be back really soon with another installment of my vintage viewpoint. I'll now return you back to Arnie and Marjorie, and remember, we really do care. Thank you, Jerry. I've greatly enjoyed following the progress of your displays on Facebook. I know there's been a lot of ooing and eyeing over them. So if you aren't listening to the Enhanced Podcast, head on over to SWActionNews.com or our Facebook page to see pictures of Jerry's astounding display work. So that is our show for this week. We will be back next week talking about some gentle giant mini busts. Death Star Gunner, Jar Jar and Wall. Yeah, the Christmas Jar Jar with the holiday lights and the Santa hat. That's our show. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Action News. We hope you've enjoyed the show. We want your feedback and suggestions for Star Wars Action News. You can email us at show at SWActionNews.com or post your thoughts in the Star Wars Action News forums at SWActionNews.com, the most friendly forums on the web. You can also find Star Wars Action News on Facebook and Twitter. The links to our social media sites are at SWActionNews.com. You can be on Star Wars Action News by calling our voicemail at 415-508-JEDI or sending an MP3 or iPhone voice memo to show at SWActionNews.com. All materials submitted become the property of Star Wars Action News and are subject to use on our show. You can find even more Star Wars coverage at our sister podcast, Republic Forces Radio Network, where we review each episode of the Clone Wars cartoon series. You can find that podcast at republicforces.com. If you're into Star Wars novels, check out the Star Wars Action News Book Club, where we read and review all the Star Wars novels. That podcast is at swactionnews.com. For more Star Wars collecting, please check out GalacticHunter.com, JediDefender.com, JediTempleArchives.com, and YakFace.com. And we thank those sites for their support of Star Wars Action News. You can help support Star Wars Action News by making a donation using the Donate button at SWActionNews.com or by using affiliate links on the Star Wars Action News homepage when shopping online. Your support helps keep Star Wars Action News on the air. We also appreciate it if you would spread the word about Star Wars Action News. If you enjoyed the show, please post about Star Wars Action News on Facebook, Twitter, or your social media network of choice, or just tell a friend about the show. We would also greatly appreciate a five-star review written on iTunes. A link to our iTunes page is at SWActionNews.com. Star Wars Action News is created, produced, edited, and hosted by Marjorie and Arnie. The Star Wars Action News team is segment reporters Jerry, Brock, Jonathan, Nathan, and Steve, graphic design by Chris, image editing by Jay, podcast enhancement by Andrew and Barrett, associate produced and podcast announcements by Brock. Star Wars Action News is not affiliated with Lucasfilm Limited. The show is created by Star Wars fans showing their love of Star Wars. Star Wars and all of the Star Wars universe contains is trademark and copyright Lucasfilm Limited, a subsidiary of the Walt Disney Company. All rights reserved.
Until next time, may the pegs be stocked and the force be with you. Star Wars Action News is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Star Wars Action News. Now this is podcasting. And we will hear from you in a few weeks. All right, thanks. Where's my stuff? <laughs> we finally did that.